There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is Justin Constantine. Lieutenant Colonel Justin Constantine joined the Marine Corps while in law school at the University of Denver School of Law and served as a Judge Advocate General, or JAG, officer for six years. As a reservist, he deployed to Iraq in 2006 as a civil affairs team leader attached to an infantry battalion. During a combat patrol, Justin was shot in the head by a sniper. The original prognosis was that he had been killed in action. But thanks to risks taken by fellow Marines and a courageous Navy corpsman, he survived. We'll talk about that harrowing and heroic day, Justin's miraculous recovery, and more during our conversation with him today. Justin Constantine, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Chris, thanks so much for having me. I, I was looking at your website. I've seen uh, quite an extensive list of guests you've had before me, interviewees, so I'm honored to be here. Thank you. No, I'm honored to have you. Thank you so much for your time. For a service in Iraq, Justin earned the Purple Heart, Combat Action Ribbon, and Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medal. As a result of his injuries, he lost sight in his left eye. With most of his teeth missing and the loss of part of his tongue, he cannot speak perfectly clear, but he makes his points with compelling clarity. He can no longer run because doctors remove bones from his legs to use in reconstructing his upper and lower jaws. And he suffers from the effects of post-traumatic stress and a traumatic brain injury. Yet, despite that, Justin Constantine is a presidential leadership scholar. He was named a champion of change for veterans by President Obama, and is also one of the wounded warriors painted by President George W. Bush in his book, Portraits of Courage. In 2017, he received the Henry Viscardi Achievement Award for shaping attitudes, raising awareness, and improving the quality of life for people with disabilities, and the Veterans Advantage Hero Vet Award for significantly contributing to the veteran community through ongoing service and leadership. Justin, let's start with how you ended up in the Marines. You're in law school, and you decided you wanted to join the Marine Corps. Most people seem to want to avoid military service. What you drew to the Marines specifically and military service in general? Yeah, I, I actually wanted to join the Marines a lot earlier in life. I come from a military family, although it was never pushed on me. Um, going back to, really going back to the Civil, Civil War, but my grandfather was an Army colonel and fought in World War II. It was a 10th Mountain Division you know, storied history there, same as Bob Dole at the time. My older brother was an Air Force officer, career officer. My father was a Korean War um, era veteran. He was enlisted in the Air Force. And so joining the military was definitely an option for me. I had applied for an ROTC scholarship for college, didn't get it. Uh, quite deservedly, quite deservedly, did not get that. And um, I thought, okay, well, it's not in the cards for me. But I worked at the school gym in law school, and I was there working one day. A friend of mine came by. We were talking, and he said, okay, I, I, I got to bounce. And I asked him where he was going, and he said he was going down to talk to someone called the Marine Officer Selection Officer. I said, what is that? 
They said, well, it's like a recruiter for officers. And I said, well, we're 27. We're way too old to join the military. What are you talking about? And he said, no, they have a special program for lawyers. And I said, well, tell them I'll come down and see them tomorrow. And I did. And um, I got my paperwork filled out uh, quickly. They already had actually all the slots for Officer Canada School filled for that summer. But they liked my what I presented. And, and they were able to move some things around. And then I got a call one day, and I said, hey, can you get to Quantico in a week and go for OCS? A slot has opened up. So I canceled my summer job and drove from Denver back to Virginia and went to OCS. And then uh, that was after my second year of law school. I went back, finished law school, and went right into the Marines after I graduated. After that, you were assigned stateside. Why did you volunteer to go to Iraq and put yourself in harm's way? Yeah, I um, I served as a criminal defense lawyer in Okinawa and a criminal prosecutor for four years at Camp Pendleton, California. And actually, I had volunteered. With our, our legal team in, in California deployed early on in the war, and I volunteered and then somehow hurt my knee on a conditioning hike, I, which is really silly, but so I was no longer eligible to, to deploy, and I felt really bad because of that. And I left active duty in 04. I joined the reserves in 05. And then in 06, in 2006, there was an opportunity for, there was a local unit here around Washington, D.C. for looking for officers, Marine officers to deploy. As I said, I felt bad. I had not deployed. There were a lot of Marines in Iraq at that point. Um, my friends had deployed. Uh, there was no reason for me not to go. And so I, I Welcome the chance to, to go do that. Most people who know anything about the JAG Corps probably just picture lawyers in courtrooms wearing their dress uniforms, arguing legal cases. Yeah. Not, not Marines in combat gear out somewhere like Alambar Province where you were shot. What is civil affairs work and why are you doing it? Yeah, I, I definitely spent my time in, in, in you know, dress uniform arguing cases. I had plenty of, I know it's hard to believe that Marines get in trouble, but they sure did. I had, <laughs> lots, I had lots and lots of cases, which was, which is all good training. But um, civil, the purpose, in a nutshell, the purpose of civil affairs is to rebuild, um, destroy the infrastructure, wherever that may be, or um, in wartime and in peacetime, it's to we, we have civil affairs scenes going all over Central America and Eastern Europe and places like that to you know win over the hearts and minds, bring some expertise to a community, show them how to make their lives better through infrastructure projects, things like that. In Iraq at the time, there were a lot of cities going on. They weren't very well coordinated. And it was very challenging because of course you're in the middle of the war, combat operations going on. So Literally, because we were attached to an infantry unit, one day we may be on the combat patrol, one day we may, you know, be back in garrison cleaning our things, and the next day we might be on a more traditional civil parish mission, meeting with a principal of a school or um, a, a ranking officer of the water department or something like that to do a project. So it was a very challenging environment where we were. There are a lot of lawyers in the reserves who do civil affairs because we are used to talking with other people, negotiating, bringing groups together, collaborating. That's kind of a natural skill set for us. So I was by no means the exception. I had a lot of lawyer friends who were there doing that as well. Killed in action. Those are three incredibly powerful and painful words. 
I'm sure it must be difficult to relive over and over, but share with us the details of that fateful day. Did it start like any other day? Had you any warning of how it would end? Yeah, uh, I was injured on October 18, 2006. Um, so, you know, quite, quite coming, I don't know, 15 years, 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago now. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we, we, this is 2006. This is the height of the insurgency. They were very powerful at the time. This is right before the surge of 2007. We, we, as part of 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, Colonel DeGrosse, Battalion Commander was responsible for a huge area of operations. So we had troops in combat every day. Um, we inflicted a lot of damage on the enemy, but we also absorbed a fair amount of our own as well. And so um, there we, every day when we went out, we had to be very careful of IEDs. In fact, I had almost been blown up by an IED during a foot patrol two weeks before that. Uh, very lucky to survive that. And then we knew there was a sniper in the area because he had killed a few Marines in that area in the past couple of weeks. We had counter sniper teams out looking for him. Of course, I didn't expect to be shot by him. Um, and then I don't remember, I remember that morning because I know we stopped by a police station to talk to the police chief. Their, unit, their station was shot up by the insurgents the night before, and the colonel wanted to talk to them how to better defend their position. We stopped by a local market to talk to them about how we could help get more people feel comfortable coming and spending money there. And that's about it. But I have a very clear, again, understanding of what happened because I've talked to everyone who was there, all the Marines, the corpsmen, the doctors who operated on me, and so, um, and, and, and the reporter who was with us that day, he was there from North Carolina doing a story about 3-2. And we got to our last stop and, and got out. He and I were riding the same vehicle. And we walked away from the Humvee and I said to him, hey, Jay, you, you need to move quicker here. Because I noticed our earlier stops, he was standing very still, which is terrible with a sniper may be targeting you. You have to keep moving at least a little bit. And... I said, guys, keep moving. We don't want something to happen to you. And he said, Roger that, took a big step forward, and a split second later, a bullet came in where he had been and hit the wall between us. So just barely missed him. And a split second later, before I could react, the next round hit me behind my left ear, and it exploded out of my mouth, causing incredible damage, as you can imagine. Blood everywhere. I went down immediately. In fact, um, the Marines around me thought I'd been killed. I was not moving on the ground, just had a headshot. Somehow the bullet hit hit me between my Kevlar helmet and my flag jacket. So an incredible shot. Um, and and when the corpsman came running over, Corman Grant rolled me over. Um, I was no longer breathing. He was able to perform rescue breathing, even though a bullet had just gone through my face. So he he is incredible. He's 25 years old at the time for rescue breathing and cut up my throat and performed an emergency tracheotomy so I wouldn't drown my own blood. Um, he, so I certainly didn't expect something like that today. I'd already gone on out on probably a couple dozen patrols and we hadn't had something like that happen to us at that point, just uh, improvised explosive devices. So um, I can go on in more detail later if it matters, but just everyone did exactly what they were supposed to do. I, I 
couldn't, I, if I hadn't made it, it would have been no one's fault because it was, I was so close to not making it. But everyone did amazing uh, to keep me alive. Share with us the weeks, months, and years of the recovery process. Because in some respects, you must still be recovering even today. Yeah, I am. I am still recovering, Chris. And, and you know, that, that's how it is for a lot of wounded warriors out there. There's, you know, tens of thousands of us, 50, 60, 70,000 of us who have survived injuries that would have probably killed us in earlier conflicts. But because of incredible advances in battlefield medicine and technology, we're, we're surviving. But our recoveries are very long. Um, I was in an induced coma for a couple of weeks. And my first recollection is being in the intensive care unit. And I didn't know this, but at the time, my head, I couldn't speak. And my head was incredibly swollen. And the doctors didn't know if I couldn't speak because uh, the corpsman had accidentally cut my vocal cord when he did the tracheotomy, which would have been understandable under the pressure he was under, or, or, or what the reason was. Well, I kind of came to and heard the doctors talking about me and saying my name, and I just said, Constantine, um, and, you know, my name. And Dahlia, my wife, then my girlfriend, was sitting there, and she started crying immediately because she understood that meant I would be able to seek. My friends had pulled together money to buy a computer in case I would not be able to seek on my own. I mean, that's how serious it was. And so she called the rest of my family, and of course, I coming out of coma, I had no idea where I was, what was going on, what the big deal was. Um, and it actually did take several weeks before I understood the gravity of what had happened. In, in my room at um, Bethesda, which is now Walter Reed, they've combined, um, the doctors and nurses told Galia and my family to put up I got a lot of get well cards from people around the country and to cover the windows and mirrors with them so I wouldn't see my own reflection because I knew that may cause me to get depressed if I saw too early what had happened. And so it was quite some time. The recovery was not quick. I, I've had over a dozen reconstructive surgeries since then. The first one was in the hospital, was 18 hours long. Um, taking bones, from, as you mentioned, intro bones from my legs, you reconstruct my upper jaw or my lower jaw at the time. And so I've gone to mental health counseling, which was, which was worked out fantastic, um, physical therapy, and I still continue to get um, surgery to this day. I just had one recently about three weeks ago in my mouth. I believe this will be the last one and I'll be as far back to quote unquote normal as I ever will be, which, which I'm good with. You've just talked about the advances in trauma care and many of them directly attributable to battlefield care and the golden hour, which we've talked about in the show previously, obviously extraordinary measures had to take place to save your life. Would you share some of what happened in terms of medical protocol and action explained why you're with us today? You talked about the tracheotomy, were there other things that there just wouldn't happen 10 or 20 years ago? Yeah, well, first of all, after Corin Grant, you know, he told me that he was trying to put what's called a trumpet in my throat to keep things together. And I, I was, even though I don't remember any of this, I was in shock. I was fighting him. I thought he was the enemy, and I kept batting his hand away. And he got to the last one, and he said, hey, sir, this one 
you got to leave it in or else you're not going to breathe. And I can't do anything else after that. And he said, even though I could only see out of one eye because the other one was full of blood, he saw that I could recognize what he was saying. They were able to get me in the vehicle and then um, Corporal, Corporal Bueller, Jordan Bueller, who was only 21 years old, put his life on the line and drove me down a road to the, to the aid station, knowing full well that there were very well could be IEGs on that road. We saw them, we literally hit them every day. And he drove at 70 miles an hour. We had a standing order at that time to never drive faster than 15 miles an hour because we knew if we hit one going faster than that, we dramatically increase the chances of causing a vehicle to end over and, and killing everyone inside it. He didn't care. He knew he had to get me there in a golden hour. They got me there, pulled in. Um, I was hanging on to the two guys. They, they took me in, and I talked to the doctors who operated on me then, uh, and so I have a good understanding of what happened. But no one, they told me no one up until that point had survived a gunshot wound like this. So as you said, they had to develop new protocols. They had to figure out how to intubate me, and the anesthesiologist had to figure out how to do his job. Um, while I was kind of sitting up, because I lay down, the blood would come out, and I was losing blood quickly. So they stripped me down, intubated me on the way down, um, performed some emergency surgery, stabilizing as much as they could there, um, uh, you know, had gauze all over, and just tried to hold things together. They put me in a vibe bag, which is a SOP, standard operating procedure, kind of grim, but that was their SOP. So then they'll be on the helicopter and take me to the main ER uh, at another base. It was much more sophisticated where they're able to, again, perform some more surgeries and then on to Lancaster, Germany, and then to Bethesda. But the doctors told me that in fact, they had learned from operating on me so quickly, they developed these protocols that then saved other Marines' lives after I was injured. So, you know, if there's a silver lining to all this, other people have survived because of what they learned. So that's, that's a good thing. Are you able to stay in touch with any of the Marines or the Navy corpsmen or doctors who saved your life? Or is that just too traumatic to maintain? Um, I did loosely for, for quite a while. I, I definitely keep in touch with Corin Grant. Um, we text and phone call periodically. And, you know, he, he's, he's a friend now. He's a close friend. I, I care deeply for him for obvious reasons. Uh, the, the other guys, um, not, not so much anymore. We were all reservists, and we kind of went our separate ways. So it was a little bit challenging. Actually, when I worked on Capitol Hill, one of the guys from my unit, ironically, was in our office there. So I, you know, I saw him all the time, which is cool. But we were a tight unit while we were over there. And then, um, you know, people kind of move on afterwards. Do you ever regret your decision to join the Marines and think that fateful day and its consequences never would have happened if you'd chosen not to serve? Oh, definitely not. Uh, joining the Marine Corps, was one of the best decisions of my life. I, I retired after 16 years. You know, half of that time was in the reserves, half of that duty, but I loved it all. And I learned a lot from the time I was in Iraq before I was injured. I don't even harbor, I, I never felt really angry at the sniper who shot me because I was also 
carrying a rifle and a pistol and hundreds of rounds of ammunition ready to do the same thing um, as appropriate. He has his job and so do I and so do the thousands of Marines and soldiers around me. And so um, I don't regret it all. I met amazing people through the Marine Corps. Um, to this day, I continue to meet people through the Marine Corps. Obviously, I, I wish I hadn't been shot, but at the same time, I met so many people because of it, and I've been put in a position where I've been able to help so many people. And as I've gotten older, I recognize that's so fulfilling to have the capacity to help other people or at least empathize more with other people to understand where they're coming from and figure out ways that, you know, they can help themselves or I can do something or make a connection. And, you know, my life was running smoothly before the deployment. I'm sure it would have continued to after that or if I hadn't deployed. But, um, you know, th I think I do believe things happen for a reason. I do believe there's a higher power out there and it sounds odd, but I'm, I'm very happy where I am. So you're obviously a believer in the power of resilience. How does one find such power in the face of the adversity you've experienced? And did you know you had that power before the day you were shot? Yeah, resilience is, is interesting. And my views on it have changed over time. You know, a few years ago, I did a couple of TEDx talks about you're stronger than you think you are, which is, you know, part of being resilient. And... I do believe that we are all stronger than we think we are. I think we're all very strong. Many of us aren't tested, aren't kind of pushed to the limit, and therefore we don't know how much we actually can do. I never would have thought that I could survive and have a healthy recovery after being shot. I certainly, I, I never had a strong academic background. I never would have thought, despite being shot in the head, I would have, you know, been an honor grad at my command at South College or graduate on Dean's List in Georgetown with an advanced father after being shot. But I did because I chose to focus on that and wanted to do really well there. And maybe prove to others, but really prove to myself I can do this. Um, being shot was a catalyst for that attention and that focus and, and relying on myself to do it uh, and other people as well. But more recently, when it comes to resilience and, and that you're stronger than you think you are, I'm, I'm focusing more and more on not just the physical side of things, but really the mental and tapping into whether it's meditation or prayer or just opening myself up to opportunity, spending quiet time in a, in a very busy world, finding time to spend quiet time, delving in to make sure that I'm tracking on what's important to me and my wife and what's the easiest and simplest way for us to achieve our goals. And, and that way, when bumps do come up on the road, and they, they always will, that we, we, have, we already have a built-in pool that we can draw on, um, uh, which I think is like a pool of resilience. And so I, I do think being resilient requires dedicated effort to it. I don't think it's, it's something that just happens. I think even after I was shot, I had to spend time. I went to, uh, I went to counseling for PTSD. I spent time thinking about what now, what next, what do I want to do with my life? How do I get there? It's not just a one-step mechanism. It requires effort. But man, we are all powerful. 
when we wanted to be, and essentially when we drop down our walls and invite others to help us on our journey. You know, earlier uh, you mentioned about how you almost uh, ran over an IED. One of our earlier guests in the sh- uh, on the show at the very beginning, someone's become a good friend of mine, uh, Army Sergeant Dan Rose. He became paralyzed when his Jeep drove over an IED in Afghanistan. And, you know, similar in terms of um, the initial shock, I guess, of what the new life looks like. Yeah. Yet today he is unbelievably resilient. He also earlier in the show talked about the thousands or tens of thousands of veterans like yourself who've been injured. What if, I mean, that's a, that's a big number, unfortunately, but what if anything could people like yourself and Dan Rose and others do to reach out to be there? Because a lot of these, these men and women who are hurt, they don't want to help. And like you said, they've got these barriers that they won't let down. You know, what can we do as, as you know, GI, I'm sorry, Joe and Jane Citizen here to help them as well? Because if they're hurting, we're hurting. Yeah, it's just tough not to crack. You're right. A lot of folks kind of hunker down and are, are you know, staying at home, don't go outside, don't ship race swords. A lot, a lot of veterans don't use the VA. They don't reach out to the many, many veterans service organizations. Um, I know across America, no matter what political strength you have, people care about our veterans. They certainly care about our wounded warriors. I, I know that firsthand. So um, I think I think um, if everyday citizens, as you said, which are 99% of the population, they can, you know, I think it's a lot to ask them to do it on their own because it's almost like a foreign culture, the military, mm-hmm. but there are it's easy to find groups in the area. There are lots of well-known groups out there that they could contact and see how they could support what they need. A lot of groups, especially because of COVID, need financial help. That it sounds blase, but you know, that's what these groups survive on. That's how they help people like me, no matter what their mission is, equine therapy, PTSD, outdoor recreation, whatever it is, they need money to make these things happen. You can't just find corporations all the time. So I would I would say, you know, if you do care on a, on a macro level, find some groups that you're familiar with or ask the veteran you know what some groups are that he or she will know. And then you connect with them financially or then a lot of them need volunteers as well. And that way you can find a way to meet them personally, the people who run the programs and the individual Sometimes individual warriors they serve. And so you may not have that one-on-one experience with pulling someone out of their house, but you know, you don't need that. You just need to support the groups that are on the ground at the grassroots level. And so I think if people can just take a little bit of effort to do that, then they're gonna they're gonna they'll feel good about it because they're helping us, but they're gonna make a difference um, in, in many, many laws. We've been talking to Marine veteran author and motivational speaker, Justin Constantine. I'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. 
The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with our guest, Justin Constantine. Marina survived being shot in the head by a sniper in Iraq and made a recovery that was nothing short of miraculous. We were talking before the break about resilience. Do regrets have a place, any place, in our ability to be resilient? And if so, what is their role? It's an interesting question. I think it's, I think it would be naive to say you can't have any regrets. Um, but, it's a big but, you have the regrets, you think about the issue you're facing or you did face, and, you, and then you figure how to move forward. Um, it, you know, in, in my case, I can't really feel regret about what happened that day. It's not like I didn't return fire or something like that. It just happened. But other challenges, 
you realize that, well, you know, I say you're in a car accident and you haven't been paying attention. Yeah, you have a lot of regret about that because that, that is on you potentially. And so you can have regret about it. That's not, that's an emotion and you're getting touched with that emotion, but then you can ramp things up and start to feel more positive, identify what success looks like coming out of that space. You know, I'll honor that, that bad space that you're in. That's okay. I still have bad days where, you know, I'm kind of in a funk or uh, I'm struggling with something, but I don't live there. You know, I remind myself quickly some great things I've done. And it doesn't take long for you to make a list eventually or writing it down or just saying out loud of great things that you've done in the last week, two weeks, month, or six months. You can, you can do it. Um, it can be, I provided for my family. I walked around the block. I, you know, I read my kid a story. You know, it doesn't have to be, I say the world. You know, you can just, but these things, positive affirmations make you feel good, help you get in a better place. And, and then that is part of being resilient is being able to get yourself um, feeling, feeling a certain way and then moving on. As you look at Iraq today, what are the successes as you see them from American forces time there and what were the failures? <laughs> well, since we have 10 hours now, let's go and do that. But, um, yeah, I think uh, it's having the benefit of looking back, you know, armchair quarterbacking it. And, you know, perhaps it's, it's fair to say that maybe that wasn't the smart thing to do to go to Iraq. Um, and perhaps, perhaps, you know, we, we never should have thought that it would be as easy as certain folks were telling us it was, you know, it, the Iraqi citizens weren't clamoring for democracy. They don't have a history of democracy. Saddam Hussein, although a terrible dictator, was keeping things in control. We had supported him during the Iran-Iraq war. And so we really had to have a much better plan. Um, we needed the troops that some of the generals were asking for, the true numbers, we needed those early on. We needed to be there to help set up strong democratic institutions, if that's what we expect to see. If it's just to take out Saddam Hussein and um, let the country figure out what's going forward, knowing full well that Iran is right there looking at shops and there's lots of terrorist groups around there. Um, <laughs> and that's a different story. And so I think, um, I think every presidential administration has been since then, then and since then, has been in a really tough position where when is enough enough? You know, when do we bring them home? You know, how long do we keep them there in harm's way? Uh, are they providing national security by being there? Is it fair for our young men and women to be? exposed to lethal harm when we don't, when we can't really say what the mission is or what success, we can't define what success looks like. So these are these are high level issues, you know, State Department, DO, Department of Defense, White House issues that a lot of times in, in the Iraq story were never fully answered. And so that was a point of frustration for me. Even my Marines would say, so, you know, what what is the ultimate goal for us here? You know, and, and I like 
I don't know. Um, I read the news just like you. I know where our orders are, and that's what we focus on. We're certainly not creating policy over here unless we do something really bad. You know, we're not creating we're not creating policy. We're kind of following words, but um, I, I sure wish that after 9-11, I do agree that a strong response was warranted and merited. I would prefer to focus on Taliban and Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and not redirect Soviet forces to Iraq and focus on the problem at hand and when appropriate, move, um, move on. So you mentioned 9-11. You know, we know we've got the 20-year anniversary coming up in just a few short months. You know, this being America's longest war, was all this for nothing? It's a tough question because it's so personal. And I, I hate to say yes. Um, I'm walking around with serious injuries. So are many others. There were tens of thousands who didn't come, didn't come home from Iraq or Afghanistan. And, you know, it's it, it surely nice if we could point to something and say, well, that's why, you know, that's why it, that it worked. You know, we, we had to pay with blood and treasure, but it worked, but I don't think we're there. I don't, I don't, I don't see it. I don't, no one's ever connected the dots for me. And so um, I, I struggle as someone who participated in it and, voluntarily and suffered as a result, which I'm okay with, but then to see that we still had troops over there, as you said, 20 years later, it's hard to swallow. Yet at the same time, we kind of know that once America goes away, 9-11 could happen very easily all over again, especially with Russia involved, and Iran, and, and China to a certain extent, all very powerful countries who would like nothing more than a power vacuum. So, I don't, I'm not jealous of these high-level administrators who have to make these decisions. I just pray that they take very seriously every decision they make because American lives are at stake one way or the other. We talked about your shortened recovery time. In 2007, the year after you were shot in the battlefield, you started a new job with the U.S. Department of Justice, working in the Office of Immigration Litigation, when I'm sure you could have just decided to hang it all up and do nothing. How that between present itself and what compelled you to take that work? Yeah, I was only in the um, I was only in the hospital recovering <clears throat> for a couple of months. There was so there were so many injuries that time that for instance my room that was supposed to be for two of us, or for one one person, I had a roommate. Um, it was tight quarters. And so I I went home pretty early so I could recover at home. I didn't live far from the hospital. I could sleep for 12 hours at a time. The nurses, who I'm still friends with, taught uh, Dahlia how to clean my mouth and take care of me. Um, and, and then I would come in regularly for surgery after surgery. The job in also immigration, immigration litigation was a dream job for me. And it's, it's actually a job I applied for when I left the Marine Corps. Uh, there were some other Marines working there that told me about it. It was a prestigious job in Department of Justice, but they're on a hiring freeze. So then uh, I was shot two years later, and um, the gentleman who ran the whole department had been a Marine sergeant in Vietnam. And he came to my Purple Heart ceremony. He said, you know, when you're ready, we'll have a, a job waiting for you. 
and that, that's all I needed to hear. And went to work there, and I still didn't have lower dentures. I, I couldn't speak without drooling like crazy, and so this job required a lot of research and writing, which was perfect for me. No trial work at all. I just had to talk and you know constantly wipe drool off my face, my mouth, um, and so. It worked out really well for me and gave me a chance to learn a lot about our immigration system. And and ultimately, I represented the government, but this was in this position, this was the last appeal people had here in America. They exhausted all their other remedies. It was at the Court of Appeals whether or not they would get to stay in America or had to be sent back home. So I really learned a lot about the challenges a lot of people face in their home countries, whether it's being persecuted by their government because of their sexual orientation or gang warfare in their neighborhoods or female genitalia mutilation or whatever challenges they face and, and how they just so desperately wanted to be in our country and raise their families here. And those are hard decisions. Like, you kind of gloss over on the news, but people who make those decisions, the trial judges, that's hard work because every case is, is personal. Let's fast forward just for a moment to last year. Just as the pandemic was beginning to change so many lives, you were diagnosed with stage four cancer in early 2020. Yeah. First, how are you doing today? And second, what was going through your mind when you got that news? Yeah, so, you know, bottom line up front, I'm doing very well right now. And so that's that's nice to a lot of, a lot of people, particularly my wife and my medical team and a lot of other, a lot of other reasons. But we were in England at the time we had gone to England. My wife had um, applied for a one-year program at Cambridge University, graduate program. She had actually been at school there when I was shot doing a PhD. She dropped out of that program to be with me. We were a boyfriend girlfriend. She had the opportunity to get back to Cambridge. We went there, and it was, it was great. We lived on campus there. Um, we had been living in Manhattan for four years before that, so I really enjoyed nice quiet solitude after you know New York's like horns and yelling and screaming and, and <laughs> interesting smells and <laughs> so it, it was really nice in Cambridge. I could work remotely and, and it was good. Um, we went to the doctor for the for some blood work on, on an unrelated issue. He he was when he saw the, the chest results he was very concerned. We had another test done and he said, look, I, I, think you, I think you have cancer. Um, I'm a general practitioner, I'm not an oncologist, uh, and I recommend you go back to America. I don't think you should start your treatment here if you're gonna go back to America. They use totally different medicine than we do. I don't know how much you're entitled to under our national health system since you're on a visa. And he said, well, my wife and I catch it together. That was hard news to swallow. We walk out of the building down the street and just stop and hug each other and started crying because that was a lot. You know, you have cancer. We didn't know what kind of, you know, how, we knew it was, we knew it was prostate cancer. We didn't know how serious it was, what that meant. We never talked about that, of course. So four days later, we had put everything on hold. We're back on our way to states, found out how exactly how serious it was. It's stage four because it had already spread from my pelvic area and spine and low bits of my lungs. And so surgery was not an option. A lot of times people find out they have stage one cancer, they go to surgery and take care of it. That wasn't the case. So 
I immediately changed my diet to what they call a Mediterranean diet, really almost all plant-based, a little bit of meat, but not much, no dairy, no processed food, no alcohol, no sugar, um, you know, no soda, not, nothing like that. So very regimented system. I now things are under control. I take several medicines. I see a naturopathic urologist. I go to acupuncture every week and take some Chinese medicine, uh, herbs, herbs and supplements. Uh, I go to a, a naturopathic doctor as well, and I just started another protocol called mistletoe therapy because it's mistletoe extract. I read a lot about positive healing, energy healing, mind matter, getting down into our very cells to influence how well we're healing. So I have a robust um, platform or a menu of things that I pick from on, you know, what I eat uh, and drink and, and, and so forth. I, in my morning smoothie, which lasts actually two meals, I probably have seven or, you know, maybe 10 fruits and vegetables servings, uh, something like that. Um, and then lots of other really good things and supplements. My wife is an amazing cook. And in every one of her meals, it's onions, garlic, different fruit or different vegetables, whole grains. Um, it's, it's all organic. And so I've lost 50 pounds. Uh, I work out eight to ten times a week, whether it's, you know, lifting weights or swimming or cardio or, you know, I meditate every day, uh, do a prayer at night, uh, a gratefulness prayer. And, and so I, I'm really, I'm open, like I said, lots of reading. So I'm embracing as much as I can. I'm absorbing as much as I can. I'm trying to learn from others who have gone before me. I'm not just following a Western routine of, here's what the doctor says and here's what you do. Like, I think there's so many more, more options out there that other cultures take advantage of. And so I'm, I'm learning as I go. Um, I feel incredibly fit. I feel incredibly healthy. But for the doctor saying the scans show you have this in your body, I wouldn't believe it if someone told me. But, you know, it is what it is. But we have seen some progress. And so... I believe that by um, really focusing on the mental aspects, and this is a part that is a biggest struggle for me, because this is not in my background, it's the spiritual side of things. And I'm a lawyer by background, so I'm very analytical, I want to see evidence and everything. Well, that's not, that's not how it works. You have to open yourself up, make yourself available, try to tune in to the messages that are there, and tune in to your body. So, it's not just how many laps can I swim, but how much time do I spend connecting with myself and picturing, always picturing positivity and, you know, picture myself in 20 years or five years at a remission party that we're going to have, biggest party on the planet, you know, or, or what those are to flood my body with good feelings because study after study does show that just how you feel about things can uh, activate or deactivate cell cellular activity in your body. And and so I want to surround myself with people who are like-minded. And COVID was actually very helpful in that regard where I could hunker down. Uh, no, stress is a big part of my diagnosis, I believe. So no longer was I traveling everywhere and, 
and going from airport to airport and, and things like that, being jammed into the little small seats which are not good for your body, and, and just focusing on myself and my cancer journey and um, how, how do we find a, a, a way to yes, how do we find success in this? Um, I would be horribly remiss if I didn't specifically say my wife has been incredible, put her professional goals on hold again. And um, but together, we're not, it's not, we like to think of it, we're not overcoming adversity together. We are navigating life together and setting us up for an even more amazing life experience down the road. So, um, She's, she's not my caregiver, she's my partner in this, and um, we've never lost so much or been as close as we have in the last year, actually. So it's, it's odd how that happens, but I know I'm not the only person to say something like that after a traumatic injury. So we're in a good spot, but I appreciate you asking about it. Justin, clearly above all else, you keep moving forward. Yeah. You're an author of not one, but two books. In 2015, you completed your first book, my Battlefield, Your Office, which applies military leadership skills to the private sector. Your second book was in partnership with the Society for Human Resource Management, From We Will to At Will, a handbook for veteran hiring, transitioning, and thriving in the workplace, which is an authoritative and interactive guidebook about veteran and military spouse employment. Tell us about that project and where people can find your books. Well, yeah, thanks, Chris. And um, the first book was a leadership book uh, that I wrote, taking Marine Corps leadership principles and applying them to mid-level managers in the private sector. The second book you mentioned was, because I've been so involved with veteran employment over the years, I decided to write a book about it. And I know lots of other people who are involved, who are experts in lots of companies and organizations who have successful programs. So. I cash into their knowledge as well. Uh, I wrote my thoughts in the book, uh, but also included input from 50 different organizations about pitfalls, things that work, best practices, um, how you know how they make things work in their lives or in their organizations. And so that's why Sherm agreed to publish it. And it was one of 11 books that published that year, just a couple years ago, because it was so valuable to human resource professionals. And so um, it, it's, it's, it was really fun. Writing both of the books was a lot of fun. Uh, my website is just my name, justinconstantine.com. And so on there, there's a tab, I think it's for media, and people can find the books there. Of course, they're on Amazon because everything is, but um, yeah, the, the link goes to the same place. Sometimes, so, in fact, sometimes when I see corporations, they will buy 100 or 200 books for the people in the audience, which, which I really enjoy that. And I write a personal message to each one of them. So you also took a non-traditional path into the, the speaker's world. Yeah. Can you tell us briefly about that, please? Yeah, I, I, I never planned being a public speaker. I mean, I'm not sure anyone does, but when I was working in the FBI, uh, I was, there was a lawyer with a counterterrorism team, and I got... I was, start, I was starting to be asked to speak at a, a lot of Marine Corps birthday balls or is it after I shot a voice or different first responder events, things like that. And I really liked it. I mean, I've been a trial lawyer for a long time, so speaking is something I, I really enjoy doing. And then I was asked to speak at paid events, and I realized this is something maybe I could do for a living. 
I got permission from the FBI to start my own business on the side, which I give. And then my first real engagement, usually seekers start, seek a lot for free or for, you know, $500 or $1,000. But I was contacted by a gentleman in Texas who reached out to me. And um, actually, first I was, reached, I was contacted by a group of um, state police, and, and they said, well, what's your seeking fee? For, and I was like, can you pay for our gas? <laughs> I had no idea what my seeking fee was yet. Uh, I went there and spoke, and they gave me a thousand bucks in cash. It came in an envelope. I don't know where they got it from, but I got a thousand bucks in cash. And then, then the first uh, corporate event, the gentleman asked me what my fee was, and I just took a deep breath and I said, five thousand dollars. Which, from my background, that's a lot of money. And he said, "Okay, sounds good." And I was like, "Why did I say ten? But, <laughs> but I realized, you know, I have spent a lot of time thinking about these things. Um, I have a unique message. I have spent time curing my message to apply to corporate audiences, and so it's worth it's worth it for them. And so I I started my career charging more than maybe a lot of other seekers do. Um, so it was it was a nice way to get going. So Justin, we have just a few minutes left. Sure. What what parting advice do you have for audience about how they can feel more empowered, have strength with adversity, and achieve their goals? Yeah, well, there's, there's certainly lots of resources out there, um, you know, podcasts like yours. There's there's so much content, but um, what what has worked for me has been allowing yourself being okay with asking for help. That's critical. That's something I talk about a lot, asking for help. I mentioned PTSD counseling. I went to counseling for 18 months, once a week for an hour, one-on-one with a psychologist, and it was the best decision I could have ever made. So being open to help and playing it out in the ventilator, being okay asking for help. Uh, a lot of us aren't willing to do that, especially from the military. We're not okay doing that. That makes a big difference. At the same time, there are a lot of people in our country, in our neighborhoods, in our communities who need help right now. So look for opportunities to help others. You're going to feel good when that happens. Don't be busy patting yourself on the back, but you're going to feel good by helping other people. And they may help you as much as you help them. Like I'm getting a service dog soon, and I can't wait for I can't wait. She's going to help me a lot, but she's coming with a couple issues of her own, and I really want to help her survive. That's just a small example, but just – it takes time. You have to think about it. You have to plan it. You have to talk about it with someone. You can't be a pinball ricocheting through life. You have to make decisions and go for it. JustinConstantine.com is where they can find more about you and the work that you do. Justin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Chris. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another year from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.